I want to invite you, if you have God's word, let's go to Matthew chapter 2. In Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to begin looking at verse 3, 4, and 5 this morning just a little bit. But first, I, I just want to say, wow, I cannot believe for Heidi and I, this is our second Christmas here at Mission Church of the Nazarene. And as I was sharing with the first service that, you know, last Christmas is a little bit different. We were brand new to the church, and, you know, we were just, uh, you know, really looking in the faces of a lot of people we did not know. But this Christmas is so different because a year has passed and we've become friends with some of you, with many of you. And we are just looking at a congregation and we're so blessed to be a part of Mission Church of the Nazarene. We have a great church. Amen. We have a great church. And I, I just love the culture that's being developed here. People are starting to bring people and invite people. And it's exciting. The first service was packed, by the way. Uh, somebody had walked in. Where's everybody? Well, I think they went to the first service. But uh, anyhow, and tonight, of course, we're having a candlelight service at 5 o'clock. And it's going to be condensed. It's going to be great. You will not want to miss that. So bring your family back with you for our candlelight service. I love Christmas time. Anybody else just love Christmas time? I really do. And, you know, it's, a, it's, it's tough sometimes spending money and gifts and all that. But I love Christmas time because the movies that come out. And I will never forget one of the all-time great movies that I think has become a classic, and that is uh, the movie The Santa Claus, starring Tim Allen. How many ever watched that movie at any time, The Santa Claus? And, and I love the beginning of the movie. I mean, it just, it just takes off right away. Uh, what's happening is there's Tim Allen. He's a dad, and, and he's separated from his wife. And so the son is being brought over to be with him on Christmas Eve. And his son does not want to stay with his dad, Tim Allen. You know, because dad's boring and mom's exciting. And so he doesn't want to stay. And Tim Allen tries to do everything right, but he does everything wrong. He burns the tick, the turkey. They have to eat at Denny's, you know, that night. And, and so they go back home and it's bedtime. And Tim Allen, he, he's tucking his boy in, in to bed and to sleep. And, and he reads him a bedtime story. Do you remember that? And he reads him a Christmas story about Santa Claus and the reindeer and Santa delivering the presents. And, and, and there is a clatter, you know, on the roof. And so they're reading the story. And then Tim Allen kisses his son goodnight and he goes to bed. Well, sometime later, I don't know if it's an hour or two hours, but sometime later, what happens? Can you remember? The little boy wakes up because he hears what? He hears a clatter. And he says, Dad, wake up. And so Tim Allen's rubbing his eyes. What? Come in here. Hurry. Come in here. I hear a clatter. And Tim says, ah, no, really, Dad, I hear a clatter. And so Tim Allen gets up and he goes in the little boy's room. And, and about that time, the little boy jumps out of bed. He's in his jammas. He runs down the stairs. He runs out the front door. He's standing in the snow now. He's looking up at the top of the, the house, the roof of the house. And sure enough. There are these reindeer and Santa Claus. And about that time, Tim Allen comes out the front door. He's in his PJs and he's, you know, putting a house coat on. It's cold outside, snow on the ground. And he gets back. Tim Allen gets back. He looks at the roof. And sure enough, there are these string of reindeers and this guy dressed in a Santa Claus suit. And so Tim Allen, he's thinking it's just some guy. And he yells at him. He says, hey. And, and because he yells, it startles Santa. Santa kind of jerks. He slips. He slides down the roof, falls off the two-story house, and Santa dies. <laughs> and so Tim Allen goes over, and he's thinking, who's this guy? Kind of bumping him a little bit with his foot, and he's looking for identification. And he pulls out this business card. You remember that? And what's it say on the business card? The Santa Claus. 
And, and then he looks at it closer and he's trying to read the small print on the outside of the card. And, and it says, uh, whoever is the bearer of this card, if you find, in the event of finding this card, put on the suit and the reindeer, reindeer will know what to do. So the little boy starts jumping up and down. Daddy, put on the suit. Daddy, put on the suit. I'm not going to put on the suit. Daddy, put on the suit. And so the little boy convinces Tim Allen to put on the suit. And so he puts on the suit. They get up on the roof and he's sitting in the sleigh just to accommodate his son. And he's just sitting there. Nothing's going to happen. But the little boy says something like go or yeehaw or something. And the reindeer take off. And so what happens, the chorus uh, Tim Allen, you know, becomes Santa Claus at night. They deliver the presents. They go to the North Pole. And then the screen changes and Tim Allen wakes up in his own bed at home. And he's thinking, it's just a dream. And he's thinking in his mind that all of that, what just happened the night before, did not happen. It could not have happened. There's no way under the sun. There's no such kingdom where Santa Claus really does exist. And so there's no way. There's no kingdom. There's no way. And I'm thinking about that movie. And I'm thinking about people in our world today. And I think they do exactly the same thing. When you talk about a baby in a manger. And you talk about this idea that there was this great power that created the universe and that God became a baby in a manger. And I believe that people in our world, many people in our world today do the same thing. And they say, no way, no way, there's no such kingdom. And we look at this passage this morning and we kind of identify a similar conundrum in the lives and the hearts of those that are involved in, in, in this story. Because they're determined there's no such kingdom. I mean, look at the passage with me. Matthew chapter 2, looking at verse 3 through 5. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. What about the king, about Jesus being born? When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this... Is what the prophet has written. Precious Father in heaven, I thank you for the word today. I thank you, Father, for, Lord, bringing a story to us this morning that is not just a story from the distant past. We thank you, Father, for bringing us a story today that is a a story that is real and that is true and a story that is alive for each one of us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just anoint the word today. I pray that you would just move that one heart today that needs to be moved or Lord, I pray that you'd inspire the mind maybe that's maybe just been coasting along and there's something about Christmas that is bringing it all back again. And I pray, Lord, that the story would come alive for them. I pray, God, that you would, you would give us a chance right now to think about your kingdom, about the truth of you, God, becoming flesh, and that you'll be glorified as we think. So, Father, I pray for your anointing upon the word today. We ask this in Jesus Christ's glorious name and all God's people said, amen. Now, again, I want to use some literary strategy. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the Christmas story. Now, bear with me, because part of the literary strategy when we are looking at a story is we are identifying the characters in that story. And here specifically, of course, we have the people 
And there's the emotional response of the people, and there's the king, and of course, you know, all kinds of things are simmering inside of him. And then you have the chief priests and the teachers of the law. You know, they they understand the story. I mean, they're they're about it. I mean, the prophecy's there for them, and and so they're they're playing an important role in the story as the story unfolds. And then, of course, you have the one that is the star of the story, and that that is the Messiah. Now, now notice, with very little regard, Jesus enters the world, and the first people to hear about his entrance into the world, of course, are that dirty, rotten scandals we call the shepherds. And the shepherds are out there in the fields watching, you know, their sheep by night, and some have said, yeah, they're kind of on the margins. Some have said, yeah, they are watching over the sacrificial lambs for the temple. I mean, however the story unfolds, the fact is, it's interesting that the message comes to them first, And then it's also interesting that we look at the passage here, go back to the passage with me, and there's a phrase in the passage, in quotes here, that the king was disturbed. And I would say then, we could say that the king felt, you know, maybe threatened. Because the king was disturbed and all the people with him. Of because of the, the the arrival of this one that possibly may be the king that is rising, you can imagine how he would feel threatened because he had been you know in power for thirty five years under the appointment of augustus and and we know that he's an Edomite known for his falsehood and cruelty and and there are things that we know about human nature, and that is not only that evil begets evil but it expects evil from others. And so you can imagine the huge amount of suspicion in, in this king with the threat of this other rising king that has been then born. And then I love the response of those that are on the other side of the story because we're talking about one side of the story with Herod and all the people and their emotions to it. But then we have the other side of the story, those that are part of the Messiah, those that are part of, you know, that group that are saying, OK, God is unfolding this plan. And I love looking at that side of it because it, it shows us some things that maybe we would not normally see. And that is, what do they do as they are under pressure? What do they do? They start telling the story. They start telling the story. In fact, that is how we are, we are able to hold the story in our hand this morning. Because people began to tell the story. And the story perpetuated as God's plan unfolded. And we hold it right here. And, and I think it would be good for us to remember a few things. One, that it is a story that began in prophecy. It's a story that began in prophecy. And, and someone wants to find prophecy as God's way of communicating his will and plan for us. And that's really, that's really what's happening here, especially during this time and this age when, when they did not yet have the New Testament because this was, this was the New Testament happening. And so prophecy was key for those that did not have the full disclosure of God at this point. I mean, they had the Old Testament, but you see, the New Testament had, you know, yet to come. And so prophecy was very much, you know, a part of, of God's kingdom and his unfolding story. In fact, we see it all the way back in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter seven, looking at verse 14. Look at that for a moment. Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14. It prophesies that a pure young woman will give birth to God's son. And then in Matthew chapter one, looking at verse verse 18 through 23, Isaiah's prophecies fulfilled. You see, this is key that we have, you know, we have these markers in the text that show us that this is not just an idea that somebody has, but prophecy has been given and prophecy has been fulfilled. Amen. 
And then in another place, in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, Isaiah prophesies that Jesus Christ will come as a baby. And so Christ is described somewhat there. And then in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, Micah prophesies that Jesus will be born where? Yeah, Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. And so, again, prophecy shows all of this. In fact, prophecy gives us many, many, many more markers. And, and not just the place, but the tribe and the family blood and the line and a myriad of other circumstances that God was a God of prophecy. Amen. And, you know, the real kicker in all this is these prophecies were written between 1450 B.C. and, and about 430 B.C. And as I began to, di- you know, dig down on that, I find that. This is not only prophecy in the scripture, which scripture, that's a part of fulfilled prophecy, that we would have scripture, by the way. But also we find that there are manuscripts that have been found that we have this hard evidence of the prophecy of a coming Messiah in documents between 400 and 1,000 years before Jesus Christ ever arrived. Amen. I mean, think about this for a minute. It would be difficult enough to predict something five years away, let's say. You know, five years that, okay, this baby is going to arrive or there will be this kind of car made or whatever we want to prophesy about. I mean, imagine prophesying five years from now. It would be almost an impossibility. But, folks, we are talking about a prophecy that's 400 to 1,000 years before Jesus ever arrived. Amen. So we have a story That begins in perfect prophecy that reminds us that this is a story of God. So it begins as a story of prophecy. Then it becomes a story of promise. And we have the promise of the virgin birth. A story that the Messiah would come. And and then upon that Messiah there would rest the iniquity of all mankind or the sin of all mankind. In fact, in Isaiah 53.6 we read there. That we all like sheep have gone astray and the Lord is laid upon us or the Lord is laid upon him, not us, but the Lord is laid upon him. That's the Messiah, the iniquity or the sin of all of mankind so that we might be freed up so that we might rise up to God because Jesus Christ has taken that sin upon himself. And so we recognize that Jesus comes, you know, as the Christ child, the virgin birth and and uh, and he, he comes you know, for the people. I, I, I was laughing in the first service because I was remembering uh, an attorney, a group of attorneys in Florida that are titled, their names are Morgan and Morgan. That's the name of the attorney, the group. And it's Morgan and Morgan. And all over the East Coast, they have these billboards up and down the freeway, Morgan and Morgan. And the tagline is for the people. Well, man, I, I'm thinking about that. We, we need to have a billboard that says Jesus Christ for the people. Jesus Christ for the people because Jesus Christ came and he was born as a baby in a manger and he grew up as a man who was crucified for you. He, 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 he was sacrificed for you. He was for the people and we recognize that. This is part of the fulfilled promise that God has given us in Christ. And so in, for Jesus in giving of himself encapsulates the penultimate beauty of love and sacrifice and the idea of Emmanuel, when we see and we read at Christmas time, Emmanuel. I mean, think about that for a moment. The idea of Emmanuel, and it's the crucifixion of Christ that, that, that sets this thing, you know, in, in, in movement. And, and all of a sudden it activates the atonement of Christ. The atonement is a threefold act of the virgin birth of Christ, the, the, the crucifixion or the death of Christ, and then the resurrection of Christ. 
And in that atonement of Christ, and we have redemption that is for all mankind. Amen. And so when we talk about the fact that Jesus Christ was born, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, then folks, it is a, it's a pretty full package that we are looking at when we say, okay, this is fulfilled promise. Amen. I like what William Carey was quoted as saying. He said, the future is as bright as the promises of God. I, li- I just like the way that sounds. The future, Alita, is as bright as the promises of God. And I, I, I found out, I learned, that in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are 8,810 promises that God gives us. Did you know that? 8,810 promises. You see, this is reminding us that God, hallelujah, God is a God of promise. And Jesus was and is the unfolding of those promises. And we see that God's promises are sure and God's promises are ever after. And God's promises never let us down. While our promises, we don't do too good with. It's like the babysitter that's you know, watching somebody's little boy about six years old and he was a little hyperactive and, you know, kind of maybe a little ADHD and they could never get him to go to bed early. And so they left him with this babysitter, this young babysitter, and they get home. It's only 730 in the evening and the little boy's already in bed and asleep. And the mom and dad is just, they cannot believe it. He's already in bed asleep and they just congratulate her and thank her and they pay her and they're sitting out the door. She's getting ready to leave and she's leaving. And she says, oh yeah, by the way, uh, tomorrow you might have a situation because I promised little Jimmy if he goes and lays down and goes to sleep that you'll buy him a pony in the morning. <laughs> and I'm sure there's no way that they fulfilled that promise. Our, our promises, we, we fall short. But you see, the promises of God are everlasting. Amen. And, and so it's a story that begins in prophecy. You can see that. And then it's the story... That continues in promise, the fulfilled promise of God. But then what is the last thing? The last one is then there is the presence of God, the presence of God and the evidence of his presence in our life. And you say, well, what does that mean? That, that means that there are observable truths. There, there are evidences that God is present in our life and that we've experienced him. In fact, there is nothing like the weight and the power of of. Uh, eyewitness testimony. In fact, if you go to court, you go to a case, and I've sat in court before, and the eyewitness testimony bears a tremendous amount of weight if we are to prove and say, okay, this story is true because we're talking about a story, remember, and we're saying the story is true. Why? Because the eyewitness and the eyewitness puts weight upon the story. We begin to buy the story because of part, in part because of the eyewitness. It's like the idea that we used to have family reunions and and I would go to the family reunion when I was 8 and 9 and 10 and 11 and 12. And my grandfather, you know, he had a steel guitar. In fact, the steel guitar is in my office. I have it in my office right now. And it's this guitar he'd lay on his lap. And he had these metal picks that he put on his fingers. And he would play the steel guitar. And my grandfather would yodel. He was a professional yodeler. What is that? I don't know. But he'd yodel. And I'd tell my, my kids about grandfather that he played the steel guitar. They had seen the guitar. That was the evidence. They had seen the guitar. But it was my eyewitness testimony that would cause them to believe the story that I really did have a grandfather or Grandpa Camel who yodeled professionally <laughs> because of the eyewitness testimony. And we look at the passage here and we remember 
that, you know, part of the word of God is that the word of God, that the New Testament is a testament of of eyewitnesses. They witness what happens. They witness the birth of Jesus Christ. And, And so, you know, that is that is what brings weight to the story that we're talking about this morning. But also. I mean, recognize that there are people that are sitting perhaps in your row that are eyewitnesses of the fact that they've experienced the transforming power of Jesus Christ. And that person sitting beside you has met Jesus Christ. That person that is sitting beside you, perhaps maybe they are talking and they pray and they they know that Jesus has transformed their heart. Folks, there is power in story. Amen. I was moved when I came across the story of a, a man by the name of Sir Nicholas Winton. Bear with me on the story here. Sir Nicholas Winton um, lived to be 105 years old, and really a story didn't begin to unfold until, until he was about 100 years old. And he had a scrapbook, and, and his wife and he began to talk, and his wife said, you know, you really have to. And so the story gets out, it gets in the papers, and pretty soon there's a program, the BBC Network, uh, there's a program uh, titled What Life, or no, That Life, That Life. And they, they get wind of the story and they bring the man in, Sir Nicholas Winton. And, and what had happened is Sir Nicholas Winton in 1939 had rescued and saved 669 children. And the way the story unfolds is right before World War II is that a friend calls him. He's on a, a ski trip, a, a holiday, a ski trip. And a friend calls him. He says, you got to meet me in Prague, man. This is bad. And so he drops his plans for the ski trip and he goes to Prague. He meets with a friend. He says, things are about to blow apart. I mean, there's going to be world war. I need to take you and show you something. He goes to the concentration camps and he he sees that there are literally thousands of children that are being held in deplorable conditions in this concentration camp. And so this man who had a lot of resources and money and influence, he began to try to pull strings and call the government and every door was closed. And so what he finally did is he went to a hotel room, rented a hotel room and used a desk and his own resources and began to bring trains in and began to load up children. And he saved six hundred and sixty nine children from the gas chambers and the last the last car train car of children 250 children were never heard from again now 50 years later the story is being told and unbeknownst to him 105 years old and unbeknownst to him they had made all the contacts and those hundreds of children showed up there in the auditorium in the station and and now they were parents and grandparents and they were great grandparents And all these people, thousands of people show up and the show's happening. They're telling the great story. And then the the one that was in charge of the program, the TV program, said how many lives, as they had told several testimonies and, you know, several experiences, what they went through. But anyways, at the end, he said how many lives have been affected because of this man's effort. And hundreds of people, hundreds of people and families raised their, their hands and there was not a dry eye in the place. Because of the power of story. You see, I guess what I'm saying this morning is that Christmas time, it's a time, it's a time for story. And it's a time to tell the story of, of how Jesus has transformed and how Jesus has changed your life. Amen. Now back to the story, the Santa Claus with Tim Allen. You remember what happens, Tim Allen, he... He, through the year, denies that he's going to be Santa Claus. Well, he starts getting fat. You remember that? He can't help it. He starts getting fat and growing gray hair. Pretty soon, he looks like Santa Claus, you know, dressing in red. And, and, and so what happens by the end of the year is 
Tim Allen embraces the role and his family helps him out and they deliver the packages. And at the end of the movie, it's a feel-good movie. At the end of the movie, Tim Allen decides the kingdom is real after all. I believe there's somebody that you know that may discover a similar kind of truth. Oh, not that Santa Claus is real. But it's possible that you know somebody that will discover that the kingdom of God is real. As you share the story of how Jesus has transformed your heart. And, and you know, I, I challenged you in the first two messages of this series. I challenged you, and this is the third challenge. Here's the third challenge. Are you ready, congregation? Here's the third challenge. Challenge number three. Your challenge is between now and the rest of this week before New Year's, I want to invite you to share with somebody, at least one person, the story of who Jesus Christ really is. The story of Christmas. The real meaning of Christmas. The story of how Jesus has transformed your life. I challenge you to share your story with at least one person before this week is out. Do you accept the challenge? Okay. Come back tonight. Because there's a fourth challenge that's coming your way. Let us pray. Precious Father in heaven, I thank you for answered prayer. I thank you, Lord, that you are in our midst. And that, Father in heaven, that, Lord, the greatest story ever told is the story of Jesus. It's your story. And it's a story that transforms lives and hearts and and sets our heart afire, Lord. and, And fills us with your passion. And so, Father, I just pray that you would just, Lord, speak to that one today. Maybe it's possible that somebody's heart is being stirred right now. They're being reminded that, Lord, that the, the story of who you are, how you came to them one day, Lord, Lord, is coming back alive in them. And they're being reminded of what you did for them. And so, Father, I pray that, Lord, that this, this story, this narrative of a God that becomes flesh, dwelt among us, and now, God, you come into our hearts by your Spirit. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would just speak to that one heart as you're reminded of how great the story is. So, Father, we worship you today. We recognize what you did. And, Lord, in the next few moments, as we participate in this holy sacrament, Lord, we want to honor you. We want to glorify you, Father, as we remember this story, your story of Jesus. We ask this in Christ's glorious name. Amen.